I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Well, it's good to be with you once again. You know, this is our 112th episode, and I just realised we haven't really defined much of the terminology used in commercial property. I know you've been covering many of the concepts during these podcasts. In doing that, the meaning for some of the terms has become evident. However, I thought you might like to explain several terms which probably don't arise all that often, but nonetheless are important. One that springs to mind is amortisation. Yeah, look, Ken, I'd be happy to do that. But understand, any definition I give you are not from a legal perspective. I'm more giving you just a my understanding, if you like, a layman's interpretation of some of the things you're going to ask me about. And for this one of amortisation, what that effectively means is the spreading of a particular capital amount that you might spend over a period of time. So in other words, let's say, for example, you may help the tenant with a fit-out contribution and you may say you contribute $100,000 and you amortise it over the lease, which is five years, so they pay an extra $20,000 a year in rent to allow you to recoup that over a five-year period. Now, it mightn't be that amount. It might end up being 10000 by negotiation, so you only effectively recoup half. But then, of course, you're able to depreciate the fit-out work anyway, so you would expunge it by depreciation over the five-year period anyway, so any rent you get on top of that is a bonus. But it can also be talking about amortising a loan where it talks about a progressive reduction of a loan over the period. The principal of the loan is amortised. You pay your interest, but then you pay part of your monthly payment, particularly with house home loans, not so much with commercial, so that the loan is amortised or expunged over the period of the the loan itself. So it might be a 10-year loan or a 20-year loan. So that's how they calculate the the monthly payment so that there is part interest, part capital, mainly interest in the early part and mainly capital in the latter parts. So that is effectively the meaning of amortisation. The word option seems to come up from time to time, but from memory it can be used in more than one context. Yeah, you're right. Option does have a couple of meanings. It probably has two formal meanings and an informal meaning. The first one relates to a lease. So you you might grant a lease of, say, three or five years with options of three or five years after that. So it might be a five plus five plus five-year lease. Now, the second two five-year periods are what are called options, and they are exercisable at the tenant's behest. So in other words, you can't force the tenant to extend the lease. 
that is an option granted to the tenant. And so while it's nice to think the tenant is giving the impression of being there for life, the reality is they can walk away at the end of the first period. So there is no surety as far as the landlord's concerned. It is an option that the tenant may or may not exercise. And so clearly, if you're negotiating with your tenant and you're arguing about the rent, it may be you say to them, look, okay, I'll agree to that rent provided instead of a three-year lease, you take a five-year lease. So from your perspective, particularly if it's a built-in annual escalation, you may not get exactly the rent you're after, but the important thing is we've discussed before with commercial property is the lease is everything. Without the lease, you generally the value will shave 10 to 15% off the value. In other words, even if there's a tenant but you're six months to go on a lease, because there is no guarantee the tenant will exercise an option to renew, the valuer effectively has to treat the property as though it would become vacant at the end of the lease as far as establishing a value for lending purposes. So for you to have an extra two years on a lease is probably far more valuable than trying to squeeze the last two or three percent out of the tenant in negotiating a revised rent. So just because the option was for three years doesn't mean it can't be extended to five. You do that by varying the lease. So that's one form of option. And the other option is when you're purchasing. Now, when you purchase a property, you can either enter into a conditional contract. In other words, yes, everything's signed up, but there is a condition that is yet to be fulfilled before the contract becomes live or unconditional. The other alternative is that you can secure a property for a period of time by taking out an option to purchase with the vendor. Now, an option to purchase through the lapse of time becomes a contract if you don't withdraw. So you have an option over a certain period, and if you don't withdraw, most options are drawn that they then become the contract. So it puts the onus back on the on the purchaser. And if you're a vendor, that's exactly what you want. Some purchasers will try and make it so it's an option that if you do nothing, it lapses. Therefore, you have to take overt action or exercise the option to make it effective. In any event, most vendors will charge you an option fee. Now, that option fee is anywhere f- from 0.1% to, to up to 1% of the purchase price. And obviously, if, if the property is being sold into a hot market and you want an option, the option fee will be closer to the 1%. If the vendor is having trouble selling the property but wants to get you involved and effectively in his or her mind, lock you into the property psychologically, well, then they'll probably agree to an option fee of 
0.1.2%. Now that is forfeitable. It's win, lose or draw. Whether you exercise the option or not, or it becomes an unconditional contract, the option fee is kept by the vendor. In a conditional contract, if the condition isn't fulfilled to make it a live or unconditional contract, then the deposit that's paid under the conditional contract is to be refunded in full to the purchaser. So those are the, the differences. Now, those are the two formal meanings of option. The informal one is when you talk about having different options or alternatives and this is where in my purchase proposals I will quite often provide a number of variables or, or options so that the purchaser has something to choose from but it's not got no legal sense to it it's more just a, another word used for alternatives during the negotiation process. Likewise, I think eviction has some subtle differences as well. Yeah, eviction is an interesting one. Obviously, there is, if a tenant is in default, you have a couple of methods of evicting them. One is to physically lock them out. In other words, change the locks. And that can have the physical effect of not allowing them in. But even sometimes you will change the locks even though they're there and that effectively brings the lease to an end and that assumes they are in default and you've given them notice and done all of those sort of things. Now, sometimes that's not a practical way to do it and there are some implications if you get it wrong. So therefore... The second form of eviction is through taking legal proceedings and you then go to the court and get what is called a writ for possession and the court determines that they, the tenant is, is in breach and orders that they have to, the lease is at an end and they have to vacate. Now in both those cases it may suit you to allow them to continue on monthly and however if they're not paying rent or that's the reason why you're evicting them there is no real value in having them stay on having said that I remember we had as we're going back a few years now we had a, a ski equipment shop we managed on behalf of a landlord of ours and they were I think five months behind in their rent and we just couldn't ever pin the person down so what we did, we got there at about 6.37 in the morning with the locksmith and changed the locks. And we happened to do it. We waited until it was the right in the middle of their winter sale. In other words, this is when they, they really creamed off at the end of the, not quite the end, but getting close to the end of the ski season. And it was amazing. I think we had a a bank check couriered into us by 10.30 that morning, clearing the whole of the previous five months of arrears. So sometimes you do that as a last resort to just get the attention of the tenant. So effectively, we locked them out. The lease was at an end. They were now running monthly, but we had all our funds. Now, 
I can't remember whether we renegotiated a lease. He got the message, and I think we put him on direct deposit. But those are the physical ways that that you can do it. However, sometimes, <coughs> very rarely, it happens where a landlord has failed to do something in relation to the premises. It may be that the air conditioning is not working or you haven't attended to it, but it makes the the property that the tenant is leasing unfit for their use. And that's what's called constructive eviction. Now, it's a legal term, but it means that you have evicted them through inaction or action, depending what the um, resultant cause of the event is, so that the tenant cannot rightfully occupy the premises. Now, the tenant will then have an action against you as the landlord, but that is a third form of eviction. Very rare, but it's just something you need to understand. What about improved capital value? Well, improved capital value or capital improved value, as it's sometimes known, is relates to the, the council valuation. You have unimproved capital value, capital improved value, and you have site value, sometimes confused with unimproved capital value, and you have the net annual value. Now, the capital improved value is the amount of money that at the time of the municipal revaluations, which occurs every four years, is a reasonable estimate by the valuer of what your property would have sold for at that point in time. Now, they don't go through and obviously inspect every property. It More often than not, it's, it's a, a drive-past valuation. They've looked, they have sales in the area, they make a, a from the car comparison, knowing the size and age of your property, your managing agent is obliged, if it's leased, to provide the council with rental information on a fairly regular basis so that they, they have up-to-date information on the income from the property. So they arrive at a, a, a capital improved or improved capital value of the property and then generally they apply a fixed percentage to work out what the net annual value is and sometimes it's 5 or 6% depending on the type of property. So arguably it is conservative, the percentage. But if they get the, the improved capital value wrong because they have over-assessed your property, you can object. You have a window of opportunity within... They advise you of the four yearly revaluations, and you can uh, raise an objection to that. And so, while the rates themselves are not generally charged on that figure, the capital improved figure, it's generally the net annual value. The net annual value is derived from that figure, and therefore, that's the one that you would challenge. Now, that some councils operate on the unimproved capital value. A lot of rural councils do that because many of the properties, it's very hard to assess a 
and net annual value for them, so they generally use the unimproved or site value of the property. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an overview of the council workings and what that means. I've often heard people refer to certain documents as deeds, although I suspect there are several different types of deeds used in commercial property. Okay, deeds. I think in simple terms, you want to think of a deed as a mini-contract. Equally is enforceable at law, but generally it doesn't contain as much detail and in most cases will have another document attached to it to which it refers. So let me give you an example, a couple of examples. When a tenant wants to, a commercial tenant wants to assign a lease, there's no point in redrafting the whole lease because the new tenant will be operating under that lease. So what you do is you have a, what's called a deed of assignment and that spells out who the tenant is, who the, the new tenant, who the old tenant was, who the landlord was. So everyone's described in the document. It refers to the fact that it is being assigned. It reconfirms the fact that the outgoing tenant is still responsible until the expiry of the first term of the lease so that, from your point of view, you have two parties on the hook until the, that first period expires. And it makes reference to the lease document itself and says it is attached to this deed. So it could be as simple as a one-page document but generally it runs into two or three pages, mainly because lawyers like to earn their fees. So in essence, that's the first one. Now, the second one is what's called a deed of variation because sometimes during a lease, you're not going to upset the, so much the, the lease term, but you might, for whatever reason, you might decide to reduce the rent or you've undertaken some work on the premises so that rent is agreed to increase or it might be that you haven't done the work yet but if you do the work then the rent will increase to such and such so you have a deed of variation which just spells out those changes that have been negotiated to the main document which would spell out if you if the tenant wanted you to to undertake some work you know, rejig their petitioning or whatever, you would spell that out. You'd probably have a specification provided by the architect or builder which would form part of the deed and then in return for that, the rental as specified in the schedule item so-and-so of the lease would increase from X to Y on such and such a date. So that's a deed of variation. Again, it's a simple document, just isolating and describing what's been agreed as changes to the main document which it refers back to. The final one would be a deed of extension and that is when a tenant exercises their option, some lawyers insist that you have to actually redraw the whole lease and have everybody execute the whole lease all over again. The idea of an option is that the tenant exercises the option to extend, all the terms and conditions are the same except for they now 
have one less option. Let's say it's a 5 plus 5 plus 5. They will then have, when they exercise the option, it will be a five-year lease with a five-year option, not two options. So that's the sort of thing that a deed of uh, extension will say. And then that will the deed will also specify what the new rent will be. Now, if in the process of negotiating the new rent, again, you agree between the parties some other variations or whatever, the deed of extension may in part be a deed of variation as well, but effectively it formalises the exercise of the option and again has the main lease attached to it rather than reprinting and having to re-execute that main document. So hopefully that explains the concept of deeds. I'm sure we've barely touched the surface in what you've covered today, but it's a start. And maybe we could devote a, a further podcast to explaining more of these terms used in commercial property? Yeah, I'd be more than happy. Just let me know down the track when you're ready to do that. Look, thanks, Chris. That would be great.